Read with me from Mark chapter 11, verses 27 through 33. And they came again to Jerusalem. And as he was walking in the temple, the chief priests and the scribes and the elders came to him. And they said to him, By what authority are you doing these things, or who gave you this authority to do them? Jesus said to them, I will ask you one question. Answer me, and I will tell you by what authority I do these things. Was the baptism of John from heaven or from man? Answer me. And they discussed it with one another, saying, If we say from heaven, he will say, Why then did you not believe him? But shall we say from man? They were afraid of the people, for they all held that John really was a prophet. So they answered Jesus, We do not know. And Jesus said to them, Neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things. Turn to Mark chapter 11 here at the end of the chapter. We see a confrontation between Jesus and the chief leadership body in Jerusalem. That's the the Sanhedrin. They come to Jesus with a question, but they prove that they themselves are unwilling to actually hear the answer to the question. No matter what Jesus would have said, there was a trap there. They weren't really asking a question. They were seeking a result. This presents us with the opportunity this morning to consider, are we ourselves willing to be confronted this morning by this text by the divine authority of Jesus. I'll ask it again. Are you, wherever you're sitting, whatever it is that you're coming into this morning with, whatever it is that you confessed, as we confess together, whatever it is, wherever you are, whatever your understandings and questions are, are you willing this morning to be confronted by the divine authority of Jesus Christ? Let's pray. Father, we pray to you because the fact is, of our own natural disposition, none of us are prepared to be rightly and honestly confronted by you. We are confronted with obedience day after day, and we choose disobedience. We're confronted by righteousness, and we uh, over and over again choose unrighteousness. Uh, Lord God, we need your intervention to our natures. We need your Spirit's work upon us. We need you to give us eyes to see and ears to hear, faith to receive your word to us this morning. We thank you for the grace of the Scriptures being opened up in these moments, the simplicity of these words on a page recorded for us, inspired by your Spirit, that speak yet today with the divine authority of the Son of God to a people in this room today. Thank you, Lord. We trust you for your work by your word and spirit this morning in the midst of this congregation. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. This morning, I just want to do a little bit of orientation in this. One of the sweetest things about this time in Mark, some of you may be doing the math and you recognize this is our 41st week in the Gospel of Mark, 41 times on Sunday mornings, almost a year opening up the Scriptures together. And one of the sweetest things about spending this time together looking at this particular little bitty portion of text, it might seem a bit much, right? Except for what it's afforded for us is the ability when we look at each one of the texts to understand them within 
context. Let me just give you an example that we're going to look at a little bit later today. We're going to look at the fact that they ask what gives you authority to do these things. I've read that. I've read that many, many times. But typically, it was when somebody told me to open up my Bible and look at a text. And I'd just read that little bit of portion of Scripture. What authority gives you, what authority you have to do these things. And I didn't really take the time to look at the fact that it's in a context. He had been doing some particular things, right? He had been overturning tables in the temple. He had been teaching in the temple daily. Those are some of the things that they're asking about, all right? As well as, we've spent these 41 weeks together in the Gospel of Mark. We have the full context of the whole of the Gospel. And we see that Jesus has done a lot, all right? Over and over again, the Gospel writer Mark says things like immediately, and then Jesus goes off and he heals somebody, and he offers a teaching, he gives a parable, he performs a miracle. He's busy throughout all the book of Mark. And so when this question comes to Jesus, it comes in a context, you see. And that's one of been, been one of the sweetest things to really soak in and get to know the context of each of these passages that we're looking at together. Now, one of the first things that we see in context this morning is Mark chapter 11, verse 27. Look at it with me. It says, And they came again to Jerusalem. You know that they were staying just outside of town in uh, Bethany, um, Bethsaida, just right outside of Jerusalem, and they were coming over and over again into Jerusalem, and when they would come into Jerusalem, they would come to the temple. They came again to Jerusalem, and as he was walking in the temple, the chief priests, the scribes, and the elders came to him. This is another indication that Jesus had come, not so much to Jerusalem, but when, when Jesus is setting his face on Jerusalem, specifically he's setting his face on going to the temple, that he says some temple work to do. What's taking place in these chapters is a confrontation between Jesus and the temple establishment. That's all the religious posturing and power that surrounds the temple and all the leaders that are there and all of the reflection that has taken place and all that is meant by and indicated and foreshadowed in the temple. Jesus is doing business with the temple. In the end... What Jesus is doing is he's showing himself to be the true temple. And he's showing that, not so much in contrast to the foreshadowing of what the Lord had given us in the Old Covenant about the temple, but as a fulfillment of it. The contrast is with the practices of the leadership and so many of the people that were taking place in the midst of the temple. Now, you'll notice who comes to him. It's the chief priests, right? the scribes, and the elders. This is a group of religious leaders that are none other than the makeup of the Sanhedrin. The Sanhedrin. This is the group of people that center, centered at the religious and, and political life of Jerusalem. Among the Jewish people in Jerusalem, leading over the temple and the religious practices there that then sort of went out from Jerusalem around all of Israel, this authority that they practiced in the Sanhedrin, given their position, they were close to the Roman authorities, and they were close to the temple, so they sat in this middle place of authority. And so given that place, they had really pretty much an absolute sway over the religious establishment of the people. 
As such, they exercised considerable political authority as well. We're going to see that in the coming pages. As, as the dispute between the Sanhedrin and Jesus, as Jesus is doing this business in the temple, becomes a dispute that is brought into the political arena with the Romans. This makes it all the more astounding here to see Jesus demonstrate his own authority in their presence. You see, Jesus doesn't come on behalf of the Sanhedrin. He doesn't come on behalf of the synagogue of Bethlehem or the synagogue of Galilee. He doesn't sit in some seat of authority. Jesus simply comes, and he comes teaching, and he comes prophesying, and he comes demonstrating. And in the process, he proves himself master over every circumstance that he faces in Jerusalem, even the circumstances of this particular passage. In this particular passage in which the Sanhedrin challenges the authority of Jesus, the gospel writer Mark launches into an extended section in Mark that that really this passage at the end of 12 serves as a transition, or at the end of 11, serves as a transition into chapter 12. Chapter 12 begins with Jesus linking the current religious establishment with those who have murdered the prophets who have gone before. That's confrontational. That's, that's something that you say if you think you have some sort of authority to say it. Then Jesus will have direct and personal confrontations during the course of the remainder of chapter 12 with each of the political groups that are represented in the Sanhedrin. The Pharisees are in chapter 12 are going to come and they're going to ask a question about taxes. The Sadducees, they're going to ask a question about resurrection. And the scribes are going to ask a question about the greatest commandment. And Jesus is interacting with authority with all of these parties that make up this great authoritative group of the Sanhedrin. All of this face off is taking place in the temple. It's notable that this confrontation between Jesus and the Sanhedrin begins with a question about Jesus' authority. If they could have just destroyed his authority right up front, they wouldn't have to have these further confrontations. But because Jesus stands up and demonstrates his authority in our passage this morning, there's more conversation and confrontation that needs to be had. I've noted before that no one really questioned whether or not Jesus did the things that he did. Nobody really questions whether or not he said the things that he says. Such skepticism about the life and ministry of Jesus didn't crop up until generations after the biblical record had been recorded for us and affirmed by those who were contemporaries. All right? There's little skepticism that among his contemporaries that Jesus was a miracle worker and a prophet, that he worked, And he said the things that are recorded for us. That skepticism comes later. The main question on the minds of the actual contemporaries of Jesus was whether or not Jesus was for real. Like not really doing those things, but rather the question of whether or not he had a right to be doing those things, whether or not he had authority, more accurately, whether or not he had a legitimacy to the power that he's exercising by his work and by his words. Not does he say and do, 
But does he have a right to say and do? Is Jesus a power for good? Or is Jesus a power for evil? Is his authority from heaven? Or is he a blasphemer from hell? That's what is going on in our passage today. You see, it's pretty serious stuff. The question. Let's look at it. Verse 28. They said to him, By what authority? By what authority are you doing these things? Or, to put it another way, Who gave you the authority to do them? This is the question. These things specifically, as we've noted previously, this teaching and rebuking that Jesus is doing when he finally arrives in Jerusalem. He's really been doing much of these things as on his way to Jerusalem and on his way to the temple. Now he arrives there and they're saying, hey, you're overturning tables and you're teaching the people as if you have a right to teach. Jesus had been coming into the temple daily to teach them as the people gathered in the temple for worship. It was in the midst of this teaching that in Mark chapter 11, verse 15, we see that Jesus does this driving out of the money changers. Jesus has been exercising authority and power throughout the book of Mark, just to list a few of the things, and hopefully you're able to call a few of these to mind. He's been teaching. I mean, you you can't just stand up and start talking and call it teaching, right? You have to have some sort of authority. The authority needs to either be by the one that sent you to teach or by the authority of the truth of the words themselves. Well, he's been teaching. And he has been dividing the truth. He's been saying things that are either right or wrong. He's, He's understanding the truth and the substance of the law, and he's declaring it. That is a huge authoritative step to take. He's been casting out demons. Mark chapter 3 verse 27 says that Jesus is the one who binds the strong man. We're also told that the son of man is Lord even over the Sabbath. And the Lord God is the one who established the Sabbath. Now that's an authoritative claim. He's been healing. He's been rebuking He's been working miracles, miracles even on the Sabbath. And most importantly, he has forgiven sins. Like what gives Jesus the right to tell a sinner that everybody in the community knew was a sinner? What gives him the right to rise up and say, your sins are forgiven? Well, he says it in Mark chapter 2, verse 10. He says, the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. You hear the question, right? You hear what the the, the Sanhedrin is really asking. The substance of the question is in the second part, the reworded clarification. Who gave you this authority? This is important. It's not necessarily the way that we tend to think, but it was very clear the way that the Sanhedrin was thinking when they were coming to Jesus. It was common understanding that all who would teach or act in such a way as Jesus is acting would need some legitimate authority by which to act as such. But Jesus didn't name any rabbi. He doesn't come in the name of some particular rabbi. He doesn't come in the name of some particular group or tradition. 
In ancient Judaism, there's a clear and defined means by which a person may find himself a platform to speak. And if you find yourself on a platform, it's because you were a person who was educated. You were instructed under some particular authority, and then that authority gave you authority yourself to step up and instruct others. The teaching of a person was shaped by his own rabbi and by his own school or tradition of thought to which that rabbi belonged. And so when you stand up to speak, you stand up in a line of a school of thought. When the person finally finds himself in a position to speak, to work among a people, it's clear that you have authority that comes from the tradition or the rabbi that sent you. You see, you don't stand up and speak as one who has authority. You stand up and speak as one who is sent by authority. And any time you would speak or act or do, you did so from this place. And everybody knew what gave you the authority to do what you were doing. And here they're coming to Jesus and saying, we don't see it. You don't seem to claim anything. You don't seem to say anything. There's nothing in your history except for a bit of a checkered past, it would seem. Where does this guy come from, and by what authority does he speak? Who gave you authority? But Jesus came speaking the gospel much like John. Not from a school, not from a tradition, but as the scriptures say, like a voice crying out in the wilderness. You see that? Now all of a sudden, that, that, it's not just a lonely voice. It's a voice that isn't sent. It just sort of came out of nowhere. And all of a sudden, you can hear the voice crying out in the wilderness. By what authority? Clearly, his authority does not come from any known tradition of men. But like John, simply from the wilderness. Which begs the question, if your authority is not from men, but rather your authority is spiritual, are you tracking with me? This is the reasoning behind the question, a very clear reasoning. If your authority is not from men, but spiritual, does your authority come from above? Or does your authority come from below? Do you see? This is the question. Is Jesus good? Or is he evil? The effort of the leaders in Jerusalem in a series of questions and confrontations is clear that the leadership in Jerusalem is seeking to demonstrate that Jesus' authority, he has an authority because he is working, he is teaching, and he is doing, but his authority is evil and blasphemous. This is the conclusion, the case that they are trying to build. Ultimately, the high priest is going to blurt out the accusation itself and make it clear and plain that they've been trying to build this case. And it's the frustration he finally blurts out in Mark chapter 14, giving clarity to the nature of the question that they're asking in Mark 11. In Mark 14, he says, again, the high priest asked him, are you the Christ, the son of the blessed? And Jesus said, I am. He doesn't ask another question. He answers the question of the high priest directly. I am. And you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power. That's the authority. That's where my words and my deeds come from, he's saying. And coming with the clouds of heaven. In answer to our question in Mark 11, 
He finally gives it in absolute clarity to the high priest. And what does the high priest say? The high priest tore his garments and said, what further witnesses do we need? You've heard this blasphemy. What is your decision? And they condemned him as deserving death. You see the argument that they're making? No matter what Jesus says or does, their argument is that his words and deeds are not from heaven. You see, the question of leadership is not a question asked with honest integrity in Mark chapter 11. If Jesus answers that his authority is from above, he'll be accused of being a blasphemer. If his authority is not from among men and not from above, the only answer that remains is that he has some evil and demonic source. So either way, the conclusion of the Sanhedrin walking away from Jesus is going to be this man is a blasphemer. All believers should be confronted with the question of Jesus' authority. I know that this has been the work of this passage for me this week. I think it's the central question for us in Mark chapter 11 is what are we going to do with the question of Jesus' authority? We ought to ask the question. It's a good question. Don't get me wrong. It's an excellent question to ask. Who sent Jesus? By what authority does Jesus perform and preach the gospel? When we confess that Jesus is Lord... We're confessing that he has authority and power not only to declare the truth and to work the work of the gospel, but we're also confessing that he has the authority to command our lives. And you see, that's a little bridge, a little connection that I realized in reading this text, that if he is the Lord, if he is from heaven, if he has all authority in himself, he has the authority to command me. You see, as authority, not only of the gospel that I can confess, he has authority over me. Are we prepared to hear Jesus say that the authority of his teaching, his miracle, and his rebuke is from heaven? We need to think carefully about the claims of Jesus. And what we'll find is that Jesus has authority from heaven to command all who hear him. Or... Are we going to join the scribes over in Mark chapter 3 who blasphemed the Holy Spirit, rejected the divine authority of Jesus, the divine source of miraculous power? Who we say, you don't have a authority. Yeah, I confess you did all those things. I confess the gospel, but I just don't think you have a right to command me. Will we consider this more in a moment? But the issue at hand is not are we willing to give all the correct religious answers to a question about the source of Jesus's authority. Not can we, can we sort of unpack the doctrines of the question at hand in Mark chapter 11. The question for us is, do our lives demonstrate a functional belief that Jesus is Lord? Do our lives demonstrate the functional belief that Jesus has all authority of heaven both to redeem and to exercise authority over our lives. See, that's not just a doctrinal question. But once the doctrinal question is answered, it is a very functional question for Sunday afternoon. It's something that we need to do business with on Monday morning 
and throughout the course of our lives. Jesus' answer, it's brilliant in so many ways. Jesus' answer, we've looked at verse 27 and 28. Now Jesus said to them, here's his answer. I will ask you one question. Now, pause here, listen. He's not being evasive. He's giving an answer. He's giving an answer in the form of a question, it's true. And he's not going to get crucified quite yet because of the way that he answers. But this is an answer if we'll listen carefully. I will ask you one question, answer me. And I will tell you by what authority I do these things. Was the baptism of John from heaven or from man? Answer me. I love that. (laughs) He doesn't just ask the question. He demonstrates his authority to ask questions of the representatives of the Sanhedrin. All right? Answer me. I asked you a question. Go. Right? No more questions for me. I have a question for you. And in my question for you, if you'll answer it honestly and with integrity, you will discover the answer to your own question. We've already seen the leaders trying to trap Jesus with their questions. No matter how Jesus answered the question, they wouldn't accept the answer. So he asks a similar question and lets them do business in their hearts and in their discussion with the truth of the answer that they asked Jesus. There is a truth in the question. He wasn't just being invasive. He's he's doing two things. He's demonstrating for the Sanhedrin that he knows the trap that they're trying to catch him in. He knows it, and he's good as a rabbi. He knows how to ask questions just as well as they do. But more importantly, the particular question that he asked them contains the truth of the answer that they had asked him. Jesus confronts them with the proposition that John the Baptist, who also lacked a a rabbinic pedigree, he lacked the authority in the same way that Jesus lacks the authority. And yet he was popularly considered to be a prophet, much like the prophets of old, whose authority came directly from the revelation of God himself. And all were willing to confess that the Lord did speak. He did give his word to the prophets. This is the testimony of the scriptures that, they, that the Sanhedrin hold to. So, has he done it again? Has the Lord spoken? Has he brought revelation after 400 years of silence to John the Baptist? Is he a prophet? By what authority did he speak? Much like the prophets of old, his, prophet, his authority came directly from the revelation of God. Authority from heaven. And the answer is actually found in the fact that Jesus really was a prophet. That's why Jesus asks the question that he does as he presents them with something that they are going to have a very difficult time denying, both because of the crowd and because of their own observation. John was really a prophet. Let's consider again Jesus' question. John the Baptist is often highlighted as one who calls people to a baptism of repentance. And and Jesus asks, where is the authority for this baptism that John practice. But that is not actually the primary purpose of John. The primary purpose of John was not cleansing people in water as a sign of repentance. And it certainly isn't the primary way that John is presented in the gospel of Mark itself. What's the primary purpose of John the Baptist? 
Mark opens with these words. These are the first words in the gospel. The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. As it is written in Isaiah the prophet, there's the authority. All right? Because of the testimony of God through Isaiah the prophet, behold, I am sending my messenger before your face. And this is speaking of John the Baptist, who will prepare your way. The voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make straight his paths. John the Baptist was a prophet on the authority of the scriptures. And what did John the Baptist prophesy? He prophesied the coming of the Lord, the one who was to come. John is the one who prepares the way for the coming of the Lord. He's a prophet who announces the one that is coming who is greater than he. Here's John's words in verse 7 of chapter 1. He preached saying, After me comes he who is mightier than I, the strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to stoop down and untie. I have baptized you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. See, if John the Baptist's baptism of water was from the authority of heaven as testified in the scriptures and the people knew it, and it was a threat to the power of the Sanhedrin, then what about the baptism of the one whom he proclaimed? What about the baptism that Jesus is bringing in his work and in his words? If John the Baptist's baptism was from heaven by the authority of God, then John was a true prophet To admit this was to admit that John is not only prophetic in calling the people to repentance, he not only serves the general function of a prophet, the general function of a prophet throughout all of the scriptures is to call the people to repent and remember the covenant of God. They're not first foretellers, they're first reminders. People who call to remember and repent. But he also serves the divine purpose of heaven in the announcement, the foretelling of the coming of the Christ. More importantly, it was at the baptism of John. Some of you may remember what happens. What happens at this authoritative, prophetic, from heaven baptism of John? Wasn't it there that Jesus was anointed by the Holy Spirit? to the very work that he has been about since that day? By what authority does John baptize? By the authority of the one who sent Jesus into the ministry and with the authority that he is exercising. Rather than give official sanction to the prophetic authority of John, and as such, they recognized they would be sanctioning also the ministry of Jesus as the fulfillment of the prophetic announcement of John. The representatives of the Sanhedrin chose, we don't know. I mean, good question, Jesus, but we're not really sure. They feigned ignorance. Let me ask you this question. When does a prideful person I mean, just think of a prideful person, all right? I'm asking for a friend, all right? Just imagine a prideful person. When is a prideful person most ready to proclaim his ignorance? Look, look at what happens in our passage. John, Jesus asked the question, then in verse 31, they discussed with one another. So this isn't just an individual 
struggling to answer a question. This is the wisdom of the Sanhedrin discussing something and bringing their counsel to bear. And they say, if we say from heaven, he'll say, why didn't we believe him? If we say from man, we're afraid of the people because they think he's really a prophet. Let's be honest, what argument do we have, right? So they answered Jesus. We don't know. I wonder if this is the first time anyone in the Sanhedrin had ever said, we don't know, to a question. That's not the nature of a prideful people. When does a person who is prideful ready proclaim his own ignorance? He proclaims his own ignorance when the truth would do injury to his own pride. It's not a hypothetical question. It's you and me. When do we feign ignorance about the authority of God over our lives? When the truth of the matter would do damage to our own pride and our own desires. What happens when the truthful answer to a question condemns us or condemns our plan or condemns the way that we would like to spend the afternoon if we could just ignore the authority of heaven? I think that one of the most powerful realities of the cross of Jesus Christ is if we're willing to admit that Jesus is the Messiah, that he's the righteous one, then when we see him die on the cross as a sacrifice for sin, dying in our place, if he's the righteous one, we're willing to confess that, he's the righteous one, he has no business dying on a cross, he should be rescued from angels on high, but he dies instead. He dies in our place, where we should have suffered, if we're honest, where we should have suffered the just punishment of God on our sins. He dies in our place. We are confronted with the uncomfortable reality that we are sinners. This is one of the most powerful realities of Christ lifted up, the scriptures say, on the cross, as he stands there as a billboard accusation of our pride, of our waywardness, that we ought to be condemned. Friends, if sinners have ever been outed, we've been outed on the cross. Jesus is lifted up as a public outing of sinners. There's no other reason for a righteous man to suffer in this way. There's, and that yet, on that same moment, on that same cross, where we are absolutely condemned, where our, our pride bubble is absolutely popped, that if we're, able, if we're willing to not hide, if we're willing to give an honest answer to what we know to be true, we know he hangs there because we ought to. And our pride, and we're brought down low to our knees, it's in that same place that we find the most comforting reality of grace. Will the truth of the cross prove to injure our pride so that we would rise up in all manner of self-justifications and all manner of pretending and performing? Or will he humble us that, yes, we are sinners? Yeah, that's me. You nailed it. I can't even stand here. And yes, we need a redeemer. And yes, we need a redeemer with all the authority of heaven to die there because he has authority to forgive sin.
Because he has taken my place. He can declare, Father, forgive them. As the only righteous man receiving the just punishment of God, he does so in the place of sinners. That as we are humbled before him, as faith calls us to, we are in the only place from which we can receive the grace of that same cross. You see, he's not popping our pride just because he wants to step on us. He's not popping our pride to make us his enemies and triumph over us. Oh no, his enemy is sin, death, and the devil. But by popping our pride and confronting us with the truth of the cross, what he is doing is he is making us children of God, forgiven and redeemed by that same outing work. That in Christ we have the reality of the justice of God and the impact of the reconciling work of grace, the love of God on display in that same billboard. The passage says they discussed it. They have a little conversation. That same word for discussing happens seven times at least in the Gospel of Mark. Each time it's, it's used of a discussion of some group of leaders who comes to Jesus in a calculated discussion when the truth and reality of Jesus is simply staring them in the face, they decide to have a conversation with themselves. It's not a discussion, a little discussion in search of the truth. You can see it. We're told of what their inner discussion was. It's not a discussion in search of a truthful answer to Jesus's question. It's a discussion as a continued means of entrapping Jesus and avoiding getting caught themselves. They were seeking some way to appease the crowds, and avoid injury to their pride. Their answer, we don't know. But that's not entirely true. They had many indications of the nature of Jesus' authority. They would discover the glory of his... They would, if they would humble themselves and actually interact and have a, a real conversation among the people who knew the truth of the Scriptures and the covenant and the other words of Isaiah, they would have, in conversation with Jesus on that day, they would have discovered the truth of the glory of the authority of the Son of Man. They would have had an honest conversation then. Jesus would have made it clear, but they chose to leave it open to interpretation. We don't know. Discuss amongst yourselves. I wonder how often does our supposed careful thoughtfulness, our open-mindedness, our continued conversation simply act as a cover for pride and self-righteousness. When, when the Lord has said something clearly, friends, when, when the Lord makes something plain to us, it's a dangerous thing to toy around with feigned unbelief. You see, you do believe. You do know the truth. You're unwilling to submit to it. Our skepticism is often cover for many sins. We're good at this. It's a form of rationalization. Our supposed doubt is not a reasonable doubt of one who simply lacks an, an, a well-informed faith. That is a reasonable doubt. Friends, we should not be afraid of doubt that is simply uninformed. Faith, even as a mustard seed, is sufficient to receive the grace of Jesus Christ. 
But their skepticism was a covering for an ongoing hold to power. Their skepticism was a cover for an unwillingness to submit their authority that they'd worked so hard during the course of their life to achieve, to submit their authority to the authority of Jesus Christ. We do not know. What a difficult phrase for a prideful people to say. The members of the Sanhedrin had counted the cost of truly considering the authoritative claims of Jesus. They decided that following Jesus was too costly for the status quo. At this point, one of the things that happens in preaching is you've said something a few times. Like I've kind of said that if you're taking notes, you're like, he's not going to say anything new, is he? And one of the dangerous things of doing that is is that you can think that you've heard it. But I'm asking you a question. Does your life have a status quo to it? Does it have a way and even a level of achievement that you've managed to pull off? Do you have a simple manner of being that the truth of Jesus has confronted many times? And you just continue on. You know it. You know the business that needs to be done. You know the humility that needs to be confessed. You know the faith that is to be walked in. But you choose to walk in your own little chosen status quo. Honestly, it's a matter for grief, not of condemnation, but of grief that today, even among those who are quite religious, perhaps even among those who are gathered here this morning, have chosen to play it safe. Perhaps you've chosen to mildly associate yourself with Jesus. You see, you're not going to be dangerous and disassociate with Jesus and have all the people that, that, that believe in Jesus know what you've done. Instead, you've chosen to mildly associate yourself, say a few I don't knows in your heart, and move on with the status quo. You've chosen to remain skeptical of his claims of, of authority over your own life, but the gospel, the authority of the death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ does not leave the option of status quo open to you. I don't know will either become faith or it will become a skeptical charge of blasphemy against the Christ. The gospel, the authority of the death of Jesus Christ doesn't leave open the option of status quo. You either belong to Jesus by the authority of the redemptive work and his claim of his life over you, or you continue on with a real quiet because you don't want anyone to hear it. On my own, I can live. On my own, I know how to be. In my own authority. This morning, it's time to cease with the middle ground. And here's the thing about faith. Every morning, Every morning is the time to hear the gospel, see Christ on the cross, see his accusation of our sin and his grace in redemption. Remember the victory of his resurrection, the promise that we are his children. Every day is the day to cease with our middle ground. And remember to confess and to walk again as a people of faith. Let's cease with our pretending that you don't know. I think particularly in the teenage years, 
This is, this is a time when you're sort of deciding how will you live your life. And man, in the teenage years, for the first time in your life, wouldn't it be nice to be out from under any authority? I mean, you're not just a kid anymore. You can sort of push off being under the authority of parents, and now you're telling me I have to be under the authority of God? But you know, don't play around in these years. And it's not just teenagers, friends. It's so many of us when we think that we've found some place to stand for just a couple minutes, some sort of status or place in this life, we think we can stand there. There is no place for a middle ground with Jesus. Today is the day to confess in humility before him and to walk in faith by means of his redeeming grace. Let's pray together. God, in these moments, we need intervention. Really, basically no one except for a blind man in the Gospel of Mark has truly, without debate, confessed that you are the son of David. You are the Messiah. You have come from God. Your authority is from heaven. You are right to rule. Just blind Bartimaeus. And then one more man, a Roman centurion, witnessing the death of the Son of God on the cross, will cry out a testimony of confession of who you are, of your rightful authority. God, both of these are a work of your grace. Uh, an intervention that was not the natural next step for a Roman centurion. This morning, there are those who walked into this room, and the natural next step was just another day at church. But Lord, we ask for your intervention, that you would prick their pride, each one of our pride. And today, that would be the day that we would be brought low so that we might receive the bountiful riches of grace. Do this work for this people, for that heart. This morning, we pray for your divine intervention and authority in each life today. Thank you, Jesus. We trust you for these things. We trust you in the name, in the powerful, authoritative, from heaven name of Jesus Christ, we pray. Amen.